Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn it to Matthew chapter one. Matthew one. And, I do, and, and we all recognize this is a family service, so there are kids in here, and they might be squiggly wiggly, and that's okay. They might make noises, that's okay. This is a family service. We are a family, a church family, so it is okay to see all, it's good to see all ranges of age and we are thankful that the kids can join us, uh, are joining us this morning. But I do want to say, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. What, a, what a joy that we get to, what we do on a normal Sunday of worshiping Christ our Lord, and then what we do at the Christmas season, season of worshiping Christ our Lord who took on flesh and became a man, they get joined together in the same day. We get to worship Christ all the more today, and we get to do it together as a church family. So what a joy it is. We'll be, we will be in Matthew 1, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning, but as we begin, we would recognize this is a meaningful time of the year that we celebrate the birth of our Savior, but for many and for much of the world, it can be a conglomerate mixture of different elements, kind of like a, a stew with various ingredients. We see the the celebration of getting gifts from a large round man in a red suit right alongside this baby in a manger. We talk about Jesus bringing peace on earth while families fight over at the same time where they're going on Christmas, what they're eating on Christmas, and who got the most gifts on Christmas Day. Angels are portrayed in Christmas plays as bringing good news of peace on earth while Rudolph deals with self-esteem issues. All this, <laughs> you guys cracked me up on that one. <laughs> All this uh, mixing can create confusion over what the main thing is on this Christmas day, this Christmas season. And so let's answer the question today, what is the main thing that we focus on? What's that main thing? Well, as every good Sunday school kid knows, it's Jesus but as our text will teach us today, it is that Jesus is the promised Messiah who saves his people. He's the promised Messiah who saves his people. See, the birth of Christ, it's a real event. It's not a myth. It is a real event that we ought to reflect on. And as we reflect on it, we are reminded of the extent to which God went to save his people and fulfill his promises. There's so much wrapped up in the birth of Christ so let's look at it from Matthew 1. Now, we're going to read Matthew 1, 1, and then Matthew 1, 16, and then we'll get into 18 through 25. So if you are able, follow along with me. Beginning Matthew 1, 1. The book of, geneal- of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then it goes to the genealogy, and we get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now let's look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In this section, Matthew provides three insights into the virgin birth of Jesus so that we would know that he is the promised Messiah from the line of David. From the line of David, we see that there will be a, a dilemma, an intervention, and then a final outcome. And all that is going back to the main focus, the main point that Jesus is the promised Messiah who saves his people. So let's look at the first section, verses 18 through 19, the dilemma of the pregnancy. It begins now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. This is what this whole section begins. This is kind of a title for the whole uh, section. It tells what it's about, and yet it also connects with the previous verses that we read, verses 16 and then all the way back to verse 1. This is about the birth of Jesus Christ. You know the one, Jesus, who was born of Mary, who was called the Christ, as we saw in verse 16? And you know the Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham, as we saw in verse 1? There is a connection through all of these passages. We find a link between Jesus to Joseph to King David. Now, Matthew is writing with predominantly a, a Jewish audience in mind. The Jews are waiting for the Messiah who would rule. And, and to rightfully rule, one must come from the line of David, the line of the great king whose throne God promised to establish forever. And so Matthew is writing to convince others that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, who is the rightful true king of Israel. Now, as scripture unfolds, we realize he's not just the rightful true king of Israel. He's the true king of all creation, all the world. And so we learn that the birth begins with Mary being betrothed to Joseph and then being found with child. She was betrothed to Joseph. We would say they are legally pledged to be married. Legally pledged to be married. They are actually considered married, legally considered married, husband and wife. But as part of normal Jewish custom at the time, they were not living together nor engaging in any intimacy. And, and yet, though they were betrothed, pledged to be married, there's a time period that would stretch where the woman would still live with her family and eventually the husband would come in procession to take his bride back to his home and seal the marriage. But Joseph and Mary had not made it to that final part of the final step of the marriage process. And so for her to be found with a child, either, either, either way, the, in the eyes of the community, one, if not both of them, would be considered immoral. For Joseph, at this point, to take Mary as his wife would be as if he took the blame for it. Take the blame for the situation and admitted that he was guilty of immorality. 
even though he wasn't. And so this idea of the public shame and turmoil that comes along with it and, and then Joseph trying to figure out what to, be, what to do should be kept in the back of our minds as we work through this story. Now Matthew provides for us the answer of what the real cause of the pregnancy was. What does he say? Before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. That's the inside scoop. While we often think that the virgin birth is the miracle, and while it is miraculous, the actual miracle we focus on is the virgin conception, the supernatural conception. And that's what Matthew is focusing on. God himself brought about this pregnancy, meaning it was very unique. It was unlike any other ever in history. And because it was from God himself that this comes, the child would be connected to the divine nature. We would find that he is divine himself. But no other person is said to have ever been conceived by the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. So this child is unique. Now verse 19, the focus of the story shifts to Joseph. It says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We're given a glimpse into the character of Joseph as well as the difficult decision before him. You can imagine the heartache that he went through, the turmoil that he was facing when he discovered that his wife was pregnant. Now Matthew here describes Joseph as being a just man. Now, what does that mean? What does this tell us about him? Well, it, what it tells us about him is that he is best understood as being someone who sought to be obedient to the law of God. He was an Old Testament believer, one who trusted the Lord. He was an upright man, a fair man. He did that which was according to God's right standards. But we also see that he wasn't cold in his righteousness. It was not a dead righteousness, but instead we see that he was also unwilling to put her to shame. I mean, he was compassionate. He was a just and compassionate man. See, there were four options that stood before him. According to the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 22, if she was guilty of immorality willingly, she could be stoned. Now, at this time that, uh, of Joseph and Mary, it was very rare that she would have been stoned, especially being under Roman rule. But she could have been. She could have been uh, he could have publicly divorced her, which would have been very shameful for her. It would have marked her, scarred her for the rest of her life. Or the third option is he could privately divorce her. Still would have brought some shame, but not as much as the other option. Or the fourth one is, well, he could marry her, finish the process, which means he would be admitting this is my child. And he might have thought at this point that would be violating the Old Testament law because he wasn't the father of the child. So he concluded to follow the Old Testament to what to do with an unfaithful spouse, but he chose to do so in the way that brought her the least amount of shame. So thinking about Joseph's 
righteous yet compassionate character. You, you think, man, this guy must have known the Old Testament scriptures to some degree. He knew God to some degree because while he sought to be faithful to the Old Testament law of what to do, he also knew the Lord's compassion and desire for mercy. Think of Hosea 6.6 where God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's not about cold rituals and traditions. It is about the heart. It is about worshiping and living for God out of a heart that loves God and as following along with that first greatest commandment would be the second one and it's to love your neighbor. So Joseph was a righteous and compassionate man, though from human nature, we would conclude that this decision would have been extremely difficult for him. And so we see here in the the first couple of verses, Matthew is painting the dilemma for us. He's setting the scene, which leads us in verses 20 through 21 to see the intervention of the Lord. The intervention of the Lord. He says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We see a a solution, a path prescribed to Joseph. While he had made his decision what to do, and he determined to send Mary away quietly, he chose the way that would spare her life, bringing little shame. But in all of that, the Lord had a different path in mind, a different solution in mind. And he graciously instructs Joseph on what that solution is. So graciously does that, that he sends his messenger, an angel, to proclaim that to him. God sovereignly intervenes because the whole situation was part of the plan. Not just from the beginning here in Matthew 1, but all the way back to before the foundation of the world. It was part of the plan. The plan is that this child would be a son of David, just as he would be son of God. The virgin birth of Christ is so important that the Lord himself sends his messenger, sends his guidance. And as the angel comes to Joseph, immediately he addresses Joseph as son of David. Son of David, which would have been a a greeting of honor uh, to him because to be from the line of David was significant. And in the angel's pronouncing him, son of David. He affirms the connection that Joseph has rightfully to the Davidic line, the kingly line. And then by taking Mary as his wife, it connects Joseph to Jesus, passing on the title son of David. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. He's commanded, don't fear to do this. Don't be afraid to do this. This order provided the direction he needed, the correction he needed. Joseph was not to fear public criticism about it. He was not to fear what people may say or think. And trust me, they say and think a lot. But more importantly, he was not to be afraid that he was violating God's law by taking her as his wife. He's not. It is interesting what the public thought 
concerning this, we know from John 8.41 that the public mindset towards Joseph and Mary was that they were immoral. They committed immorality, and that's where Jesus came from. And the Jews condescendingly spoke to Jesus, accused Jesus of this. And so we're not surprised. But it was the Lord's will for Joseph to take Mary as his wife and Jesus as his son. Now, verse 20, the angel reveals to Joseph the divine origin of this pregnancy. Because remember, up to this point, Joseph didn't know what the origin of this pregnancy was. So knowing that this is from the Holy Spirit, from the Lord himself, what does that tell Joseph? Well, it tells him really good news. It tells him that Mary has not been unfaithful. She's not been immoral. Instead, it tells him that God himself, by his power, by his will, has brought this about. God brought forth the conception Now we call this, as you heard Pastor Samuel mention earlier, the incarnation of Christ, where the eternal Son, who is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, takes on human nature, takes on flesh. And in that incarnation, Christ is fully God and fully man. Christ is that divine Son who was promised, who was to be given to us. Not only, though, does he tell him not to fear to take Mary as your wife, but in verse 21, we see that Joseph is commanded to name the child Jesus. Matthew writes in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now notice, who actually prescribes the name Jesus? Who picks the name Jesus? Is it Joseph? No, it's not. It is actually God in his sovereign choice picks the name Jesus. You ask, okay, why? Why does God choose that? Well, the first is the father is the one that has the legal responsibility to name the child. You think of John the Baptist, the story of John the Baptist. People don't believe his mom, Elizabeth, when John is born, that they wanted to name him John because they're like, there's no one in your family with that name. Why would you choose that? That's just ridiculous. They probably said it just like that. But then the father, Zechariah, his speech comes back to him and he says his name is John. And at that point, it's final. The father chooses what the name is. That's what the name is. Well, the son that is sent, given who's the father here? It's not Joseph. God the Father sent Jesus, so God the Father has the alone, has the right and authority to declare what the name would be. But not only that, why the name Jesus? Well, if you consider the divine nature and the eternal nature of this child, the name Jesus captures the second person of the Trinity and his work the best. The name Jesus is from the a form of the Hebrew name Joshua, basically a a shortened form of it, and it means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. That's what the name Jesus means, Yahweh saves. Boy, if there was anyone in history whose name matched them perfectly, it would be Christ our Lord. He is, and this name was common, 
but it was the perfect name for him. Because not only is he Yahweh God, but he's also Yahweh God who brings salvation to his people. And he is the only way salvation is brought to his people. Name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. When the angel gives the name and then says, for he will save his people from their sins, he connects this name all the way back to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, verses seven and eight say this. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In Psalm 130, the psalmist pleads with God to show mercy to his people, but then verse eight specifically is pointing to the hope for the psalmist that God would redeem them. And so we know true deliverance from sin comes from God's forgiveness. This deliverance, this forgiveness we know is found in Christ, who is God himself. Matthew 1.21 is clear about the reason for the name of Jesus. Call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What's Jesus' purpose for coming to earth? To save his people from their sins. The, the emphasis in the text is placed on the word he. He will do this. Not Moses, not Elijah, not David, not Joseph himself. It is Jesus who saves his people. So we speak of this divine son, speak of the divine nature of the child, even here from this text. We speak of it because one, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, but also two, because he has the ability to save his people. There's a strong connection between, made between the person and work of Jesus with the Old Testament's teaching of who can save men from their sins. Just, just listen to this stretch of verses here. Isaiah 43.11 says this. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. No Savior besides the Lord, besides Yahweh. Okay, how about Isaiah 43.25? It's the Lord again speaking. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Yahweh does this. How about Isaiah 45, 22, where he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The only way the ends of the earth can be saved is by turning to Yahweh God. The Jews knew this at the time of Jesus. In Luke 5, 20 through 21, we see the Pharisees' response when Jesus forgives and heals a man, the man who's lowered through the roof by his friends, you might remember that story, and it says this, uh, speaking of Jesus, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And then it says, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, give them some credit. They're right. No one can. And they knew that. The Bible is clear about that. Only Yahweh can forgive sins. Only God can save men from their transgressions. And this is who Jesus is. This is what he does. If he is going to save his people from their sins, that means he must be God himself. God himself was coming into the world not to just have fun with people, but to rescue them, to save them from their iniquities. This salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. Just like Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other. So how, how you might wonder, well, how does Jesus save people? How does he save his people? Well, part of that includes the virgin birth. It is crucial. It is of absolute importance because the redemption of man and the truthfulness of scriptures depends upon it. For Jesus to be an acceptable sacrifice for you and me, for our sins to be washed away by him, he had to be sinless. He couldn't pay for his own if he had any, but he didn't have any, so he could pay for others. He had to be born free from sin, not carrying the stain of Adam's sin, as Romans 5 speaks of. He could not be from the seed of man. Instead, he must be sent from the Father and conceived by the Spirit to avoid such stain of sin. And the scriptures clearly testify that that is what happened. That he was sinless. Not only that, Titus 2 and 2 Peter 1 testify that Jesus is our great God and Savior because he already existed even before his incarnation, being now fully God, fully man. And as God, he can fully atone for our sins against an infinitely holy God. And as man, he's able to be the perfect, sinless representative for us. He can be that great mediator between us and God. And we are all in desperate need of a Savior. All of us, all of us are sinners. All of us have violated even the first commandment. We've not put God above all things. We've not loved him above all things. We love ourselves way too much. We desperately need a Savior, and thankfully Jesus lived that perfect, sinless life in our place and yet died in our place. But in his death, he satisfied the wrath of God that stood against us. But he didn't just stay dead. As we know, he has risen again to new life and he gives his life to us who repent and trust in him. Have you repented and trusted in Christ? Please do so today if you have not. So the Lord graciously intervened by sending a messenger to Joseph. So what is the What is the outcome of all this, though? We saw the dilemma. We see the Lord intervened. Well, what's the rest say? Well, it gives us the outcome of the virgin birth. Look at verses 22 through 25. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the outcome. We see a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and yet, the closing verses there, we will see Joseph obeyed. He obeyed. But Matthew connects it first to the prophecy given in Isaiah 7, that the prophet Isaiah had foretold of a virgin who would bear a son, and the son himself would be Emmanuel, God with us. It was originally, comes from a context, speaking to King Ahaz of Judah, under a time of duress when the northern tribes of Israel and Syria were threatening him and he was afraid that they would overthrow Judah and yet Isaiah comes by the work and leading of the Lord and gives him a promise that no, 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 the Lord will take care of you. He will protect you. And then he says, in fact, why don't you ask for a sign that God will show that proof, yeah, that he will do this. He will hold fast to his word and protect you which God doesn't do that often. So when God says to do that, you know, Ahaz should have done that, but he didn't. And so God then says, fine, I myself will give the sign for all the people of David. And this sign will be one of hope that there will be a son who comes who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. And Matthew here is connecting directly that prophecy with Jesus, that it is fulfilled in Jesus But it is interesting, this fulfillment of Yahweh coming did not happen in grand halls of the king's palace. No, it came in the lowly, humble setting of a manger to faithful, poor parents. Emmanuel comes on the scene. Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Though sin had separated us from God, and brought nothing but enmity, Jesus is the one who restores that through the gospel. He is the one that will forever be with us, even though we didn't deserve that. He demonstrates amazing mercy to come to us. Well, what happens after that? Joseph obeys. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel Lord commanded him. He was obedient connecting all the way back that yes he was a just man he obeyed God's word he did as the angel commanded he took Mary as his wife went ahead and brought her into his home and he did name the child Jesus as he was told and as one writer said quote by giving the name uh, Joseph by giving the name Joseph officially accepted the child this gave the child the status of a descendant of David end quote Jesus is a descendant of David, which connects back to verse 16, which connects back to verse one, that Jesus is of the kingly line. He has the right to rule his people. And Joseph, though, in this story was obedient. The story is true. It is pivotal to our faith, but it also encourages us, it reminds us that God is faithful God is faithful to what he promised to do. He is faithful to his word, and we ought to trust him, trust his word. Not only that, as we trust him, we ought to praise him. He sent us a savior who was the victor, the conquering one. He has defeated sin and death and the devil, and there is life in him. 
So a dilemma is met with an intervention which has a, an amazing outcome that affects us still to this day. And God's sovereignty and God's grace beams through all of it. The salvation of God's people is achieved by God coming among his people. And Jesus is that promised Messiah who saves them. If the virgin birth isn't true, and if scripture cannot be trusted, then there is no message of true eternal value to give. There is nothing to celebrate on this Christmas day. There would be nothing worthwhile to make our primary focus. But we can rejoice this Christmas day because the virgin birth is true. And God is always faithful to his promises. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that this account is true. And we thank you that you are faithful to your promises. Father, we are a sinful people who need a savior, need rescued. And thankfully, you and your sovereign grace planned all along to send a Savior who is Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one that has triumphed, who has conquered, first conquering sin and death and satisfying the wrath of God, and yet we look forward to the day that he returns and conquers the whole world and reigns as king. We ask, Father, could that day be today? Please? If not, may we trust you. May we trust you every moment and every moment as we go into the new year. We thank you. Thank you for our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.